So we've been in a series called the Issachar Factor, named after a tribe in the Old Testament that were described as men who understood the times and knew what they should do. Men who could discern the culture, if we were going to borrow our, our current vernacular. Men, men who could look around and, and, and see the tea leaves in the culture and discern what it is that God might have them to do. David, as the king, surrounded himself with these guys. First Chronicles 12.20, if you're looking for the address there. And so he thought it important enough to have a, a cultural barometer around him. And as we have gone through the, uh, the, the, the series, we, we've talked a little bit about that cultural barometer. And we started off with this verse in Colossians, where Paul, writing from prison, said to the church at Colossae, not too far from the group of churches that Peter is writing to, and he said, devote yourselves to prayer, church. Be watchful. Be thankful. Devote yourselves. He says that God may open a door for our message. That, that phrase you, you should remember. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. That we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Jail. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly to the people around me. I've felt sorry for any jailer who was chained to Paul, right? You know, think about everything he wrote. They heard it all. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. That, that's, that's the money line for me. Be wise. Be discerning. Understand the times and know what you should do. Make the most of every opportunity. And he's, he's kind of saying, don't be that guy, Alan, who, who clicks faith on and off and you talk religion around religious people, and you talk everything else around everything else people. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know everyone. So, so what we've done is to say there's a wisdom that goes with it. There's sort of a, a mindset that comes along with understanding the times, reading the culture, and understand what we should do. And so we've talked about what it is to try to live holy lives in a pagan culture. We've talked about what it is to model the, uh, the, the excellence of God in our homes, in our workplace, as we relate to government. Knowing that, that there's not going to be trouble-free environment, we may not agree with stuff, but we are to model that. And there's two reasons for that. One is sort of an undercurrent throughout the letter of 1 Peter that we may look at the culture and they may look at us and know that we are doing the right things. But what is even more of an undercurrent is that Peter is kind of asking the question, why should I have to tell you to do what the government says to do when God has already spoken in that matter? Why is it that the church is having to be told to do the right thing, even as the culture defines the right thing? Just a little history here. In the first century after Christ, the Roman government was extremely concerned about the peace, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And that, that meant throughout the Roman Empire, don't cause trouble or we will help you not cause trouble. Centurion, 
knocking on your door. And so the, the emperor, the first emperor of Rome, Augustus, he, he'd already said that if the structure of the family falls apart, the structure of the culture will fall apart. And so the Romans gave some instructions about the, 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 the roles and relationships within culture, the roles and relationships within families, the roles and relationships with employers and employees, slaves and masters. And Peter is basically saying the undercurrent of this is that why is the church not leading the way? Because the culture's watching. But more importantly than that, why is the church not leading the way? Because God is watching. And I was fine rocking along with that. We talked about the household, we talked about the workplace, talked about the government. And now he's talking about anger. And that gets all in my business. So the question that I would ask you and the question that we might ask ourselves as we contemplate this idea that the church needs to lead the way, why are we so angry? Now, it's going to be just a minute before I dive into the Scripture because we've, we've talked about this a little bit. David Brooks' article that I, I mentioned a few weeks ago, the, 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 the one entitled, America is Falling Apart at the Seams, and he talked about road rage and, and airplane rage and student rage and teacher rage and, and city council rage and school board rage, and, and that there is just sort of a, a, a climate of anger. And so, basically, today we want to talk about that. The Roman government said, going to be peace, going to be a program of peace. If you're angry and it is outwardly focused and you're causing trouble, knock, 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 centurion calling. Peter challenges the Christian community to go a step beyond. There's going to be some things he says today that the Romans didn't even demand. Because he says, the culture is watching us. And more importantly, God is watching us. And for us to segregate our faith life from our other life, that's just not the way discipleship works. And so Peter is, is picking up where Robert left off last week, but I need to kind of set the stage for that. It's not new that we are an angry culture. Okay, that's, that's really not new. America's always been an angry place. We, we were angry at the British people, and we were angry at this and angry at that. We fought a lot of wars and done a lot of, of things that, that say, I have been wronged. I don't like the situation. Things are not as I want them to be. Let's start a fight. Let's start a war. We, we've always been an angry culture. But the founders of our country said, in the midst of that, there needs to be some plan for us to get along. And so they created the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch. And he said it's sort of like a, a treaty of mutual destruction that these three branches are going to keep each other in check. They're going to they're have a system of checks and balances. So you may not like the way things are, but, but if, if there is a, sort of a, an agreement across these, then the government has worked like it's supposed to, and then here we go. File that away. In my culture reader glasses, 
I and others who sort of watch this have observed that we have sort of migrated as an American people and maybe even Western civilization. It used to be that we were people of faith, and some might even say people of superstition. We believed that, that if we acted right, God would bless us. We, we believed that if we acted wrong, somehow God would cause our skin to break out, our car to break down. We, we, we would have this sense that God was watching us and that He would punish us or bless us. And it, and it was a little bit of a superstitious faith. It was an immature understanding of grace. Well, then we sort of migrated in the 20th century to a thing called modernity, and that, that actually happened in Europe a long time before called the Enlightenment, and the, the idea came along that we as humans could solve it. We can fix it. We can invent it. We can legislate it. We, can, we as humans are becoming the better version of ourselves, and so we can fix all that's wrong with our culture. There will never be a need for more wars. There will never be a, a need for more anger because we've invented machinery and we've created processes and humans are, are just inherently becoming better. We saw how that worked out. We fought the war to end all wars in the early 1900s and followed that with four or five more. Because we're not getting better. Until we get to God, we're not going to get better. And so modernity then sort of gave way to what people call post-modernity or post-modernism, where we came to this uneasy truce with the thought that, okay, you believe in something, and I believe in something else. And what you believe in is not compatible with what I believe in. Your truth is different from my truth. And while I feel like my truth is better than your truth, I'm going to respect your right to be wrong. I'm going to respect your truth because you are a human and humans get to voice their opinion. Faith, modernity, postmodernity. And somewhere in the last 20 years, we have drifted into what a lot of culture readers are calling a post-truth culture. 2016, it was the word of the year in the Oxford Dictionary area, post-truth culture. And basically, post-truth means that we've migrated from the thought that you can have your truth and I can have my truth, and I'll respect your truth and you respect my truth, and we'll just see how God's going to sort it out. Now we are post-truth, where you can have your truth if you want to, and I'm going to have my truth, and neither your truth nor my truth are based on evidence or fact. They are based on emotion. The things I want to be true are true. It's true because I feel like it should be true. I guess that is sort of like the Roman government. If the emperor said it was true, it was true. And the centurion knocking on the door. We, we, we don't have the, the centurion or the emperor anymore. And so now we are in a place where you can have a truth. I can have a truth. I believe it with all my heart, whether or not the facts support it. And if you don't embrace my truth, you are the enemy. I can no longer accept you as a person because your truth and my truth aren't compatible. 
So somehow we've moved from faith to uber anger. We are living in a big anger incubator. And we're angry all the time. Some people have said there's about three reasons that sort of group together why we're so angry. One is called partisan anger. We've sort of clustered into groups, and, uh, and our groups aren't talking much to each other anymore. We, we would prefer to live in a, in a sort of an echo chamber that, that allows us only to hear from the people who believe like we believe, who think like we think, who vote like we vote. And we don't entertain voices from outside of our echo chamber, partisan anger. There's monetized anger. You know, anger is big bucks. There's lots of money in anger. If I, if I can get you angry enough, I can sell you something. I can sell you an idea. I can sell you a product. Well, the, 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 the people, the politicians, the, the political consultants, they, they figured out long ago that, that the way to mobilize a base is to get them angry. People who do money have figured out that the way to monetize a base is to get them angry. The way to sell product is to get them angry. Some of you remember a movie that was a documentary that came out not too long ago called The Social Network. And basically, the takeaway from that movie was anger is the algorithm. Anger is the algorithm. Social media platforms, through the artificial intelligence, as proposed by this documentary, they, they, they figure out what you click on that they know, based on your other profile, you don't agree with. What do you, what do you open? What do you click? What do you watch? What videos? What memes? How do you, what do you follow that they know from the rest of your profile you don't agree with? Because that's your anger. And if they can tap into that anger, they can sell you something. That's what the whole movie was about, based my humble but accurate opinion. I mean, they're, they're, this anger is the algorithm. The anger is monetized. The anger is partisan. And the anger is online. It used to be you get a good mad up and you'd go to the local bar and talk with some of your buddies and you'd all get a little mad and a little woozy and then you go home and sleep it off. Now you go online. And you find somebody on the other side of the planet who's energized by the same anger that you're energized with. And this online anger has this, this, this ever-increasing spiral. Why are we so angry? We're angry because it's partisan. We're angry because it's, it's the algorithm. We're angry because it's online. We're angry all the time. Well... The long introduction was because I just don't think that's the way God wants us to be. I just don't think that that anger is something that we're supposed to let fester, that there is a, another pathway. Respect should take the place of rage. So let's see what the Scripture says about it. First thing is what I said a minute ago in communion. Listen to these verses. Um, let me go ahead and get them on the screen for you. Five adjectives. There they are. Finally, all of you should have 
unity of mind. Now, I said unity, not uniformity. We're all going to have our opinions about stuff. We're all going to have thoughts about politics and college football and housing values and insurance costs. Sorry, Chip. We're all going to have thoughts about those things, but why do those discussions have to divide us? And so he says, I've been talking. Well, he didn't, but he said the word finally. And here's a little tip for congregations. You know what it means when a preacher says finally, right? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) When he says in conclusion or as I close or... He's going for a while longer. Peter went for another chapter and a half. So, finally, he says, which, which I think means he was getting back to the main purpose of his letter. He'd been talking about household codes and, and getting along, and, and, and here's how we reflect the gospel in our families and in our workplace and in our attitudes towards the government. And now he's sort of closing that down, and he's saying, finally... And he gives five adjectives with no verb. All of you have unity of mind, meaning come together over the most important thing. You have sympathy, which empathy rhymes with sympathy, and both of them are appropriate here. Empathy being able to uh, understand the way somebody else feels. Uh, Sympathy being able to feel deeply. If someone's in grief, my my spirit identifies with their grief because I have experienced grief, I've experienced loss, and I'm able to stop whatever agenda I've got going on and and identify with their grief, their anxiety, their job loss, their concern for their children, the uh, prospect of relocating, the quality of kids' schools. When when we have those experiences, they're sort of collected, and and it allows us to, to not say good talk when somebody comes to us, but to to express sympathy and empathy. Brotherly love, obviously the word phileo, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, that's what it's saying. Treat people in our community of faith like brothers and sisters. I kind of like that. My brother is nine years younger than I am, so it was obvious that I could never hit him. Nine years younger. But I started realizing There was a lot of times I thought, I can abuse my brother, but you can't abuse my brother. I can make fun of my sisters, but you can't make fun of my sisters. And when he says brotherly love here, he's saying that our default is to look out for each other. Our default is to protect each other. Our default is to to say, I can pick on them, but you can't pick on them. Because we've worked through all the mess here in our family, we are working through even more mess in our family, and we're going to look out for each other. (laughs) And the world says, I wish I had that. I wish I had likeness of mind. I wish I had brotherly love. I wish I had sympathy. And that's the point. He's saying when God lays this down, now he's going to depart from just instructions to the culture because now he throws down the H word at the very end, humility. Humility. Be compassionate. Be humble. 
And that's where anybody who was reading this would know that he was departing sharply from the Roman codes. Because in the Roman way of thinking, humility was a deficiency. To be meek was to be weak. And weakness was to be despised. Weakness was to be avoided. Weakness was to be overcome. And yet, Peter is reflecting what he knew of Jesus when Paul in Philippians chapter 2 said he existed as God. He was God. But he didn't regard that to be something to be held onto. But he emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave. He was made in the likeness of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death. So now Peter is departing from the cultural norm. He's saying humility matters. And when the outside looks inside and they see you with like-mindedness and humility and encouragement and compassion and sympathy and empathy and brotherly love, when they see all those things, expected result. Whether they'll say it or not, because like the Roman culture, in our culture today, meekness is weakness. But they might look at somebody who holds you when you're crying, who talks to you when your kid's off the rails, who prays with you in the confusion over some big decision that's been made. And they, the, the, the crack of the hubris begins to widen because they say, I wish I had that. Now, some of you are looking at your watches going, six minutes till noon, he's done one verse. Let me pick up the pace. He goes on to say, you're going to suffer. Anything we don't understand, we criticize, right? Anything we don't get, we're going to throw rocks at it. Any, anytime we don't have compassion and sympathy and brotherly love for our brothers and sisters, when, when we can say, well, I'm better than them, then then the world is right to throw rocks at us. But he said that way back in chapter 2. Now he's saying they're going to criticize you for doing the right thing. They're going to criticize you when there's no malice in you, when you actually are sympathetic and empathetic and brotherly and sisterly loving and, and your unity of mind and you're compassionate and you're humble. They're still going to criticize you. And the persecution here doesn't, the language is not so much that it's uh, the, the physical persecution, the torture that would come a little bit later in time. This was more of a, I'm not going to invite you to the party. I'm going to say bad things about you. You're going to come into a room and they're all going to be like this and then they look at you and it's, it stops. It's that going on here. It's, it's that, that you're going to be the target of gossip. And he's saying, but you have the faith family. Now, talk about this for a second. Our reaction is motivated by emotion. Our response is motivated by faith. There is a huge difference, church, between reacting and responding. Reacting is when, when somebody does something 
That guy cuts us off. That, that, that cashier doesn't give us all of our change. That, that, that neighbor keeps throwing his stuff over the fence. That, that, to react is emotional. To respond is faith. Let's talk about that, what that means. Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. Repay evil with blessing because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their hearts from deceitful speech. Well, I don't know if it occurs to you, but all of this is written by Simon Peter. And if you're a little bit in the know about his life, he was the guy that was impetuous, right? He, he, he sees Jesus walking on water. He says, I want to walk on water. Jesus says, get your bad self out of the boat. He does. He sinks. He has a panic attack. He's the guy in the Garden of Gethsemane who, who lopped off an ear of a soldier. He's the guy who said, I'll never deny you. And he did. So all of these things, he was a pretty slow learner. And I could so identify with it. I could so relate to what he was saying here. So then he says, we can't repay evil from evil. This is the departure. In the Roman world, if somebody did something to you, you did it to them. In the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But you remember Paul's letter to the Colossians? Let your response be seasoned with grace. Let your conversation be seasoned with grace. So, he, he's, he, he starts in here, and he says, do not repay evil for evil. On the contrary, bless those who are called. Now, that, let, let me do a little cultural tag in here. Here in the South, we have a phrase, bless your heart. That is not a true blessing. That means you're near the drain of the gene pool, and so may something really heavy fall on your head. That's, a, that's derogatory. Bless your heart. You're a moron. You just don't know it. He's saying, grit your teeth, put away your pride, and bless someone who's unkind to you. Now, it is not a secret that I have to confess occasionally my attitude on the interstate. I've confessed this to you before. When I am in my lane and another guy decides he needs to be in my lane but three inches in front of my front bumper, I don't react well. And I certainly don't respond. And yet, what the Scripture seems to be telling us to do is that I should say, as my wife advises me, maybe he's got something going on where he needed to act like a, a person who was in a hurry. Maybe there's something in his life that would cause him to be that way. Maybe there's something going on. Maybe, just maybe, he needs a blessing rather than cursing. Maybe I need to process a response instead of a reaction. 
And then Peter says, when you're internalized, when, when you can do that in the privacy of your own car, Alan, Jackson, when you can do that internally, when you can in your private devotion say, okay, I get it. The guy who's unkind to me online, I need to bless him, not respond with something unkind. Don't repay evil for evil. And then Peter quotes Psalm 34. I, I won't go all the way into it, but in Psalm 34, it sort of uh, shows up again and again. Peter's already quoted it once in this letter in chapter 2. But Psalm 34 seems to be his ethical guidebook, his rationale for the stuff he says. And I, I, I won't go back, but let me just read a little bit of it. He says, who desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. Do you remember what Robert said last week? That husbands, if we don't treat our wives well, God will not hear our prayers. Here he talks again about prayers that are hindered. When we don't sort of internalize that even with our anger, whether it's partisan or monetized or online, whatever is the cause, when we do not give our anger to God through the way we treat each other and the way we regard the outside world, apparently there's a hindrance to our prayers. There's a difference between right and righteous. According to the laws of the state of Georgia, I am absolutely in the right to maintain my lane on 285. I am absolutely right to say I am maintaining a safe distance between me and the reasonable car in front of me. And so when the guy pulls right in front of me, he is not in the right. I am in the right. I can be right but then all the things I think in the privacy of my own car are anything but righteous. And what Peter is calling us to is a sense of righteous that moves from private to public. And so the famous verse that you've probably heard in any other context, I uh, can throw it up on the screen for you. He says, in your hearts, in your hearts privately, let, let God be on the throne. Let God be king. Revere him in your hearts. Then he says, no one can harm you. Always be prepared to make a defense. That's the legal term, defense like, a, like on the witness stand. Be able to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason that hope for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, you act this way, not everybody's going to like it. Whether you're 8 or 88, there, there's going to be people that react to righteousness because that's the way our world is. We have suffered for righteousness from the beginning of time. He says, they're going to come at you, but your good behavior in Christ may put them to shame. Don't have time to go into this as it was an honor-shame culture 
and the, the, the idea that honor is through might and honor is through dignity and honor is through power and fame. Shame is to be avoided at all costs. In an ironic twist, Peter is saying that if we react, if we respond and don't react, if we are righteous and not necessarily right, then the culture is shamed in that transaction. Crazy good. And then he closes up, and I need to, to give you a word of caution here. Um, oops, sorry. When hostility points us to hope, resurrection becomes reality. If you're reading this Scripture in your Bible, you're going to notice sort of a, a topic that would be distracting if I didn't say, stop looking at that, we'll talk about it later. And the, the, the Scripture reads like this. It says, verse 16, So for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And you're going, oh yeah, Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. Now, I unpacked this a lot more in Wednesday night Bible study. It's on our podcast channel. If you want to hear an hour or so discussion, it was so long it might be broken up into two podcasts because we got into it on Wednesday night. But let me suffice to say that the Scripture says that Jesus proclaimed His triumph over death after his death. We are not sure when he proclaimed it. We're not sure who all he proclaimed it to, but we know two things. Resurrection was enough of an event for him to shout it out. Amen? Yeah, resurrection! And number two, he did not evangelize the dead. The word for proclaimed there is not the usual word for evangelism, uengelion, which is to proclaim in such a way that someone could receive him. There is no salvation after death. But he told hell about it. He told heaven about it. You remember the end of the Christ hymn that Paul preached in Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those under the earth, on the earth, above the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is worth proclaiming to anybody who wants to hear it, and for those who don't want to hear it, Jesus is risen from the dead. Amen. He is alive, and it is that hope that gives us hope. And that was the point of what Peter was trying to say here. He's saying we can act right, and, and, and all we can hope is that it points people to the hope of the resurrection. Jesus suffered for us, so if we suffer a little bit because people are gossiping about us, or even if, as they did later on, they sow us into animal skins and throw us in the floor of the Colosseum with wild beasts, even if that happens, He suffered for us. He died for us. His death bought our forgiveness with God. He said, let them see your hope. 
Be ready in season and out to to give a defense for the hope that is within you. Paul said, if we don't have this hope, we got no hope. He said, if the resurrection is not a thing, we got no things. He he said, if if the resurrection's not true, then everything we do is empty. He he said, it's in vain. It's, It's all empty. It's all worthless. Many a preacher will tell you, if the resurrection's not true, I got better things to do on Sunday. Because that's the hope. That's what people point to. And church, I've seen it this week. We, we have four families in our church who are dealing with grief right now. Okay, the, their, their loved one has died. And the only hope they have is that there is life beyond this life. We've got several people in our church who are dealing with a chronic illness. It, it's a sickness that just won't stop hurting. The doctors try this, won't stop hurting. Doctors try this, won't stop hurting. Doctor tries this, it returns. Several people. we got several people in our church who are, who are just overwhelmed with the decisions that are going on in their life right now. If there is no hope that there's something bigger than all this, what hope do we have? And so Peter loops all the way back He says our anger is a smokescreen. Our our anger is us not allowing the culture to see the hope that is within you. Let them see it. Talk about it. Live it. Let your walk and your talk line up so that your walk and your talk point other people to the hope that you have in you. Why are we so angry? Why do we as a church not let the Lord deal with our anger and allow us to to show the culture, but even more importantly, to show God that we, we, we are disciples who love God, love people, make disciples, make a difference, and we make a difference when we as the church deal with our anger differently. When we are trying our best to live holy lives in an unholy culture. Pray with me. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the hard words of Scripture. We thank you for what's here and and how it challenges us. And I pray this afternoon that whether on our interstate or in our homes, that we would respond and not react that we would point to the hope that is within us. And Father, if there's a person in this room who says, I want that hope in me, let that conversation happen today. Let them find a green-shirted volunteer in the lobby and let that person point them or have the conversation with them that, that this day they would claim Christ as their Savior and know that they have the hope of the resurrection. If there's someone watching online, Father, let this be the day that they reach out through comments or chat or email or whatever it takes and say, I want to have that conversation because I want that hope today. Father, let this be the day that hope visits lives. We don't understand the transaction of how just us trying to live holy lives in an unholy culture allows people to be pointed to you, but we receive it. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name.